And welcome once again to another edition of A Plain Answer here at Redeemer Broadcasting. I'm Dan Elmendorf. Joining me on the Skype line today is Dr. Kevin Sherritt, Senior Pastor of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Rock Tavern, New York. Kevin, it's great to have you with us today. Good to be with you, Dan. Thanks for having me. Kevin, I was interested in your treatment of Acts 17. Some time ago, you had a short series that you preached that flowed from Acts 17. And I'm wondering if you can uh, tell us what the chapter is about and how to understand what's happening in that chapter. Sure, Dan. It's an excellent chapter for thinking through issues related to uh, proclaiming and defending the Christian faith, especially in a uh, a non-Christian or a pagan context, very much like the one we find ourselves in today. Um, and it's a unique and instructive and powerful example of how Paul defends the faith in a non-Christian environment. We have plenty of examples in Scripture of Paul uh, going to synagogues and addressing Jews and reasoning from the Old Testament scriptures. And this passage alludes to him doing that as well. And we have, of course, Paul's letters to Christian churches. And so we know how he speaks to Christians and we know how he speaks to Jews. But Acts 17 is unique in the sense that it is a lengthy defense of the gospel in front of a secular um unbelieving first century Greco-Roman audience. Uh, And in that sense, it's a a text which is relevant to the church in a unique way. Um, He is in Athens, of course, the famous philosophical city, famous city for its uh, contribution to democracy. And he's sort of on something like a missionary furlough. He's waiting for Silas and Timothy to join him. He's been left in Athens. And while he's waiting, the text says, and this is beginning in Acts 17 at verse 16. The whole passage runs from verse 16 all the way down to the end of the chapter. But he's waiting for uh, Silas and Timothy in Athens. And, you know, he there he would have seen magnificent structural buildings and architecture the Acropolis, the Parthenon, various pagan temples dedicated to many different gods. Um, you know, this is a city with a with a rich philosophical and intellectual heritage. A few centuries before Paul, uh, the city had the Academy of Plato. It had the Lyceum of Aristotle. It had the Garden of Epicurus, the Porch of Zeno, who was the father of Stoicism. All of these um schools of ancient Greek philosophy founded three or four centuries before Paul. And so he's in a rich, if you will, humanistic culture and environment. And what's interesting is that while he's waiting in Athens, instead of admiration, if you will, it says he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Of course, Paul is is a culturally literate man. He would have known that some of this stuff was, much of it was beautiful and had uh, commendable um, aspects. But what is unique is that he sees a city full of idols. Uh, He would have seen temples to many, many different gods. Uh, One scholar says it's easier to find a god 
in Athens than it was to find a man. And so at the outset, it's interesting, Paul's attitude. He has, if you will, a kind of holy jealousy. He is provoked, the text says, distressed. He sees not just or not simply beautiful architecture. He sees idolatry. And so he has a kind of holy emotion uh, that I think the text instructs us. And we have to feel a right when we uh, encounter these things. And so Paul is provoked. He is scrutinizing this stuff. The text makes it clear. And he's thinking about it. And so what he does, jealous for the glory of God, right? there are times when our piety, our, our loyalty, our conviction of God precludes artistic compliments. And this is one of them for Paul. And, and, and the text tells us his response to this, what he does, seeing the idols and being distressed by them, is he goes and he reasons. He doesn't become unhinged. He reasons. He, he is committed to the full public, historical, rational um, nature of the Christian faith. And so he reasons in the synagogue with the Jews in Athens and the God-fearing Greeks, which he has done in other places. But here it says he reasoned as well in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. So he went out into the public sphere, uh, perhaps the agora, the Greek agora, the marketplace. And this was a place where debates and discussions would occur. And interestingly enough, he meets, the text tells us in verse 18, a group of Stoic and Epicurean philosophers, and they began to dispute or argue with him. And so he's immediately, if you will, thrown into the uh, the intellectuals and the intellectual milieu of his day. The, the Epicureans were materialists. Uh, they believed the universe was made up of these atoms which swerved and fell through space randomly. All knowledge they felt came from sense perception. And so they thought or sought purely natural explanations for all things. And you can see this is somewhat similar to uh, a, a, a sort of materialistic science view which you might encounter today. Uh, Epicurus himself thought that uh, lasting pleasure was the goal of life, but he didn't mean hedonism the way you might uh, mean it today if you call someone an Epicurean. He meant tranquility or an isolation from passions, disturbing passions, and a focus on simple things, realizing that death is the end. And so the Epicureans were hostile to theology. And uh, and then he meets the Stoics. The Stoics are with him, and, and they agree that all knowledge comes from sense perception. And they held the world was governed by reason, or, or logos, the Greek word for used for Jesus in John chapter 1, the word for word. Um, and they, they viewed this logos as sort of um, a refined fire, a principle which permeates all things. And so they were basically pantheistic. They, they, they thought that uh, the God of refined, you know, God, small g, of refined universal fire was in all things. And again, their goal was to live in harmony with, with nature, which for them meant to be in harmony with reason. And... Uh, you know, these philosophers, especially the Stoics, generally taught a cyclical view of history, meaning history went through sequences over and over and over again and never really reached a, a final goal, 
the Marcus Aurelius, the Roman emperor from uh, around 180 AD, was a Stoic. And if you read his meditations, you encounter this idea of trying to live free from disturbing passions and a, and a very deep commitment to the fact that history is just moving through repeated cycles. The same thing that happened in the past will happen again and again and again and again. And so now these schools of thought, they're past their glory in Paul's day. And the situation in Athens, as we shall see, is really skepticism and, and, and boredom. But in any case, these philosophers meet Paul and they begin to dispute with him. And so the text launches us out into a situation which is a lot like the modern situation and one for which we need to be equipped. And thus, the text is very, very helpful to us. So, Kevin, Paul saw a lot of groups of people each of them holding different views, but it wasn't the Christian view. So what happens next as he ministers among these people? Well, it's interesting, Dan. The text actually tells us that some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Uh, Not exactly a warm uh, reception. And uh, it's an insult, really. The word for babbler means one who picks seeds. It's, it's, uh, It's something like saying... Paul is a scavenger. He doesn't really have a system. He seems to be picking up a scrap here and a scrap there. And, uh, and so they're, they're not understanding what he says in a coherent way. In fact, it, it continues and says, others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. And then Luke the author of the book of Acts tells us they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. So somehow in Paul's proclamation of Jesus and the resurrection, they thought he was perhaps a polytheist, that he was advocating foreign gods. Some commentators think that this means they took Jesus as one God and the resurrection as another God. But so it's important to see what's going on here. Paul is in the midst of this public intellectual environment, a public environment pervaded by idolatry. And what he does is he preaches. He was preaching the good news, the gospel about Jesus and the resurrection. And I think this is also informative for us. Sometimes we think apologetics is one thing and proclamation of the gospel is another. But here they're integrated together. This is an apologetic proclamation of the gospel. We never get away from the gospel. Paul doesn't try and reason to the gospel. He reasons from the gospel. He preaches the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. And this shows a certain boldness and a fearlessness of him, but it also teaches us about his method, um, that he, he was starting, if you will, with the Christian gospel. And so, What happens is they take him and they bring him to the Areopagus, the the Hill of Mars. That's why this dialogue is sometimes called Paul at Mars Hill. And they want to know more about this strange teaching, these these strange ideas you're bringing to our ears. And then Luke makes a very interesting aside, a sort of parenthetical remark. He says in verse 21, all the Athenians and the foreigners who live there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. And so here you can see a society which is exhausted intellectually, uh, which has its best philosophical uh, days in the past. 
And when societies get like this, and I would argue ours is to a large extent this way, um, the only thing one can spend one's time doing is talking about and listening to the latest new thing, the latest shiny object. And we have a lot of that in our culture again today. Nevertheless, Paul has sort of um, pricked their interest, right, and brought him for something like a, a, a preliminary inquiry, a serious hearing uh, to the Areopagus. And it's at that point that the text moves to Paul's um, public defense of the gospel. And so I'll move to that, Dan, if you will, the actual defense next. Yeah, please do. All right. So Paul stands up and he begins an address. And this, this is the, um, the famous speech at Mars Hill. Men of Athens, he says. So he, he's respectful and he is addressing them in a sober way. And I think he is fulfilling here, even though he's strong in his convictions and forceful in the way he's going to apply them here, he is nonetheless an apologist very much like Peter tells us to be in his first epistle, that we are to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts. There is never a place in the apologetic endeavor where Christ is not presupposed, sanctified in our hearts as Lord, So he's ready, having sanctified Christ as Lord, to make a defense, an apology for the hope. And by apology here, we mean an apologetic, a defense for the hope that's within him. Yet, Peter tells us we're to do this with gentleness and respect. And so Paul does that here. And it's very important to see the character and the demeanor of the apologist are just as important as the arguments one makes, right? Because we often ruin our arguments in defense of the gospel by our own intemperance or our own sinfulness, our own lack of graciousness or gentleness. And so Paul is being respectful. He says, men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Probably not an insult, probably simply a statement of fact that might imply a little bit of superstition. And then he says, for as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship. Again, this means Paul was, he was not playing the role of a casual tourist, you know, taking snapshots and enjoying his time in Athens and putting together a photo book. He, he's walking around theorizing, looking carefully at the objects of worship, developing, if you will, uh, a biblical approach to what he sees around him. And again, this text is not about idols in our hearts. There are, there are plenty of biblical texts about this. This is about public national idolatry. And so he says, as he walked around, he found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. And this kind of thing apparently happened when some event which was read as good fortune or deliverance or blessing fell upon the people. They felt it must have come from the gods, but they didn't know which god it was, so they erected an altar to an unknown god. And so it shows a certain sense of religiosity, if you will, sense of divinity, as John Calvin would call it. But it also shows a kind of ignorance, and, and thus Paul continues, now what you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you. And so, here we're reminded of his general approach to pagan religion in Romans chapter 1. He says all men know God in Romans chapter 1. 
They know he's the creator God. They have a sense of God's existence, of, of his glory, of his eternal nature and power within them. But they suppress it in ignorance. And you can see that in the Athenians. There's a sense of God, but there's a kind of smothering, distorting ignorance. And Paul hits both of those notes here. And then he says, now, now he's not saying you're worshiping the Christian God in an unknown way. He's saying you're worshiping some unknown deity, and I'm going to, to, by God's grace, lead you out of this ignorance. I'm going to proclaim the true God to you. He's not saying you have the Christian God, you just don't know it yet. He's saying you're in ignorance. Let me bring you into the light. And again, he proclaims or he preaches the gospel. So it's very important to see what Paul is doing in that regard. He's not saying you have a good bit of religiosity uh, a good bit of stuff about God. Let me add a few things to what you have, and you'll have the Christian God. Rather, he makes a declaration of the Christian God. And he begins in verse 24 with the creation. He says, The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth, and he does not live in temples built by hands. So, Paul, who had been preaching Jesus in the resurrection, goes back to the beginning. He, he goes back to the creator Lord. And this is because Jesus and the resurrection are intelligible. They make sense inside of the Christian narrative, inside the narrative of God's ways and works with the world and with Israel. And so Paul realizes that, in a sense, to defend the gospel, I have to defend the whole of the biblical revelation. I can't simply defend a piece of it. All the pieces are connected together. So he goes back to the creation. And what's interesting to note in this whole discourse, and this goes to Paul's being sensitive to his context, sensitive to his hearers, knowing who's in front of him, is he never cites chapter and verse. He never cites the Old Testament text. He never says, as Isaiah says, or as Jeremiah says. He never quotes a verse and says, I'm quoting now from a from Exodus, but he is leaning on the Old Testament narrative, on the words and the works of God, and alluding to them repeatedly. There are a couple dozen allusions to Scripture in these 12 verses or so, um, but he doesn't cite them, and I think that's important. He's using the word. He never steps off the foundation of the word, but he realizes, I have a pagan audience that doesn't know the Old Testament, so let me just speak it to them. And so that's instructive to us, right? And he says, the creator God, as Lord of heaven and earth, doesn't live in temples built by hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything. So this is an immediate and a pretty devastating shot across the bow to their religiosity, to their temples, um, to their whole uh, sense of national religious pride. God doesn't need anything, he says, because he himself gives life to all men and breath and everything else. And so he's immediately tried to undercut uh, one of these fundamental instincts in pagan religion, which is we'll build a temple for God. We'll, we'll, we'll move from man and sort of work our way up to God. We'll give him what he needs. And so Paul is saying, you don't understand the basic relationship between the, the creator, Lord, God of heaven and earth, and human beings. Um, and so, having started with creation, he moves to providence. In, in this sense, 
this is a very theologically sophisticated defense. He, he, he begins with the creator and then he says, from one man, here he means Adam, he made every nation of men. This is a sort of shot against Athenian racial superiority, cultural superiority. In one sense, we all come from one man. There's one race. And he says, and he made the nations such that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them and the exact places where they should live. This is a remarkable statement of God's providence. It says, all men you know, biologically, but also their boundaries, their, their, their geography, their historical ebbing and flowing, their times, their places, where they're to, to live. All men, all nations, all ethnicities, tribes and tongues are ordered underneath the providence of the creator God. And so in just a few verses, he set out the Christian view of creation and the Christian view of of providence. We, we are not, Paul is saying here in a very subtle way, we are not just atoms swerving around in space. We are not just in an endless historical cycle. We have a history that's ordered by the sovereign providential creator and is under his hand. We live in a personal cosmos, not an impersonal cosmos. And so he continues that God did this so that men should seek him and perhaps reach out or grope for him and find him. So God's providential ordering of all things, Paul says, is to the end that they could find him. And But because of men's sin, because we have both a sense of God and we suppress it in ignorance, the text says men end up groping. The image here is sort of like a blind man along the wall, groping, trying to find God. Though, Paul says, he's not far from each one of us. And then, and this gives us another insight into Paul's technique in defending the Christian faith. He says, for in him we live and move and have our being. Now, this is a citation from an ancient Greek poet, Epimenides. In him we live and move and have our being. And then he continues, as some of your own poets have said, so he cites Epimenides, he knows of other poets, plural, and he cites another one, Aratus, we are his offspring. So let me say a few words about this, Dan. I think this shows Paul's cultural sophistication. He knows Greek poets. He's able to cite them. He doesn't agree with their worldview. In him, we live and move and have our being in its original context was pantheistic, meaning all things are in God. But Paul says, I can cite that and I understand it in a Christian way, right? We are all his offspring, can be misunderstood, but there is a sense in which if God is the creator of all, that everything, all human beings are God's offspring. And so Paul is aware of his culture. An apologist needs to know something about the poets, the playwrights, the filmmakers, the ethos of the culture he's addressing, and we see that in Paul, right? And then he continues and says, therefore, since we're God's offspring, we shouldn't think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. And then he finally gets to the gospel. He says, in the past, God overlooked such ignorance. So again, he's indicting their ignorance. And he doesn't mean that God winked at sin, but there's a sense in which God did not confront the nations, 
Now, he confronted Israel, to be sure, but in the past he did not confront the nations. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. And, and notice the, the, the note of repentance means that Paul does not think they have half of religion right. They need wholesale repentance. They are in ignorance. And they are to repent because God has set a day in which he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. And he's given proof of this by raising Jesus from the dead. And so again, he's not trying to prove the resurrection. He proves the final judgment from the resurrection and he calls them to repentance and faith. It's a marvelous thing and some hear about it. And um, of course, others sneered. But a few of those, the text tells us, became followers of Paul and believed. So there's a lot of instruction here on using the Christian worldview in a culturally sensitive way, and yet in a way which does not compromise and calls forth repentance. That's very helpful. Uh, Thank you very much. Dr. Kevin Sherritt sharing with us today about Paul's sermon on Mars Hill. And uh, Kevin, if listeners want to know more about this passage, is there any reference we can give them? Yes, Dan. I think it would be good if they could go to um, the church's website. We have a a short two-sermon series on this, which will explicate this a little more fully. It's www.westminsterchurch-ny.org. All right. We'll put that on our website as well. Dr. Kevin Sherritt, thank you for joining us today. And dear listener, quick reminder, you can find this podcast on our website. That's found at RedeemerBroadcasting.org. Please join us again next week at the same time for another edition of A Plain Answer.